0: Can never step in the same river twice, my friend. Heraclitus told us that, didn't he? I think we're going to start there. That's, <laughs> I think we just found the
1: beginning of the show. Uh, my little, my little pre-Socratic reference there. Yeah, gotta love the pre-Socratics. So today we're going to talk to Scott Shapiro, mm. uh, who yeah. is not pre-Socratic. <laughs> no, he, no he's, he's decidedly post-Socratic because uh, he's alive right now. Yeah, that's that would be that would be
0: one clear threshold <laughs> distinction. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so did you say his name already, and I missed it? Yeah, Scott yeah. Shapiro. Oh, and his paper with David Plunkett. Yes, fascinating paper. We'll see how this goes because it is a it is a specialized philosophical paper, but that I think has deep payoff for legal thinkers. But we're going to have to explore yeah. how that how that works
1: because the 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 philosophical uh, patch it works is a jurisprudential patch as well as a philosophical patch. Mm-hmm. Um, so. There's but it's a, but it's the, written in a philosophical register rather than a is.
0: traditional jurisprudential register.
1: Oh yeah, you're right. It is. You're. It's that's true. Um, it's but it's neither uh, m- traditionally legal, non-jurisprudential, nor traditionally legal jurisprudential. Yeah. it's just not what we do most of the time. It's was, some of what you do. But. I,
0: well, I was going to say how uh, how we each come to this, but I think I'll save it to to tell Scott. Okay, oral argument podcast at gmail.com. That's where you send all the complaints, mm, as
1: as we well know.
0: <laughs> <laughs> we, we didn't get any new complaints though. Uh, like we didn't get any. New, we we got another true. email. We've and, got
1: a we've got a big Fed Courts email, which raises some interesting questions. Yeah, and thoughts. We've got some, uh, and next week we are going to do a mailbag. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, I, we I are. I haven't told you that yet. No, but we, we are not. next week doing a mailbag, uh, and um, and we will um, we will explore the woodshed. No oh boy, because I'm very familiar with it now. I know all of its decor. Um,
0: so so get your get your comments in, your comments, your complaints, your suggestions, your questions, your frustrations, yes. your, your passions, your your deepest
1: desires, all that, and get, get it in soon so that we can talk about it on this week's mailbag. Especially the complaints, um, because if, if you're looking for me, I'm out by I'm out by the woodshed. <laughs> Any other pre-roll that we need to do? I don't think so. I feel like we're running aground here. <laughs> <laughs> oh, For, not a good not a good thing should have had breakfast this morning but, oh you didn't have breakfast no i didn't have breakfast that's a you got to start the day right my friend you got to have a n- nutritious meal I, I agree i normally do i just didn't have time it was up too late i mean i
0: think i had coffee too late yesterday because um, i'm teaching this uh legal theory class so we're going to the health afternoon. corner we're going to health yeah corner. i mean yeah you know, i don't have any aches and pains but but boy yeah so yeah. I'm, I'm totally counting on on Scott to, uh, to get my blood pumping and to get this, get awesome. this you
1: know, we need to get the show on the road. Absolutely. Uh, I, uh, I slept reasonably well last night, but the <laughs> night before last, I didn't really at all. I woke up at two and I didn't, and I couldn't fall back asleep. sleep. Really? So, so I, I had, got about three hours of sleep.
0: So listeners, if you have sleep issues, I feel like every podcast would, you know, you listen to Merlin, Merlin Mann and Dan
1: Benjamin. Uh, I used like, to. Like every few shows is about sleep. <laughs> <issues>. <laughs> I remember that. Yeah, that, it's good to is know it? that's still true. <laughs> They're still tilling that field. All right, all right.
0: Let's. This is enough nonsense. You think it's enough nonsense?
1: Uh, I guess. I mean, we
0: could talk about. Remember, how we used to talk about movies, and we just
1: do random stuff
0: until people yelled at us, and then we stopped.
1: Yeah, it wasn't
0: s- because people yelled
1: at us that we stopped. But. That's true. Uh, we still we, we still do some rando things from now now and again. Yeah. Yeah. That'll be back. Okay. Let's uh, let's get Scott on the horn. Okay. So Scott, so th- thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, thanks for having me. I've been wanting to have
0: you on the show for a long time because I've been reading your stuff, um, you know, um, since before legality. I teach a modern American legal theory class here at at UGA, and and used your um, Hart uh, Dworkin guide oh, right. in that class. And um, so I've been following you for a long time, and and it's great to finally be able to talk in person. Well, kind of in person. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, well, um, I'm 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 glad. We connected, though it's funny to connect with somebody in a productive way over Twitter. So, yeah,
1: (laughs) that's right. This is a good thing. If nothing, if Twitter gave us nothing else, it's given (laughs) us this podcast episode. It it gives all of us
0: the the opportunity and joy of acting like a jackass. (laughs) (laughs)
2: That's so funny. That's exactly. that's exactly what I aspire to be, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. a ju- ju- jurisprudential jackass. Yeah, yeah, yeah. in
1: a reasonably low stakes environment. Although um, uh, we've mentioned this on the, uh, a few times over the last few episodes, there's this—I uh, uh, can't remember her name now—Hessick, yes, uh, uh, who recommends sort of a, a kind of. A, I haven't read it, so I shouldn't characterize. No, you it. shouldn't characterize. It. Why there's, don't you characterize? There's an it? ongoing. You've read it. Well,
0: no, but there's an ongoing back and forth about how. How law profs should present themselves on Twitter and, and and more generally, should they stake out political positions? And, you know, yeah. eventually we'll do a show about this more in depth. I mean, there are but, some questions
1: there about, you know, w- responsibility uh, that we have as if we're going to be if we're going to say things in public uh, as there's is there a sort of public intellectual responsibility thing? To and think contrary
0: wise, is there a responsibility not to be undue in like to be, to be falsely moderate? Like, is there a responsibility not to do that? Right. I mean, I, this is like, I just, I'm yeah. pretty much a say what you think kind of person. Yeah. For
2: the most part. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I actually do think about this a lot, um, because, uh, my Twitter feed is not, um, well, it does not possess, possess gravitas. <laughs> um, you know, it's, I, I do, I do do the Jack, Jackass thing. Yeah. Um, um and because I think it's fun. Um, I do, I do worry sometimes i mean i'm i'm very partisan in in my tweets um i don't i don't uh, pretend to be anything um but uh, a liberal democrat but um i think twice about certain kinds of um jokes about trying never to make fun of people's appearances or bodies or using profane language, um, not getting into too much, um, mudslinging. Right. Um, uh, b- just because it's, it, it isn't, um, even for me, it's, it's not, it's, it's not dignified.
0: Um, Scott, do you think dignity is the right word? Or is that, I mean, to me, all of those things, I feel kind of the same way and I don't hide my, my preferences, but all that seems to me to be continuous with the other aspects of our lives if we aspire to be, you know, a person who has respect for others and is, you know, uh, is generally open, honest, but like humble enough. Yeah. With not.
1: one exception, right. It's it, because I agree that I, you know, Scott, I don't, I don't, I don't, I try not to do the things you just described too. Um, the only one that I feel like is a departure from the way I would be if I were really letting it all hang out is the cussing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, right,
2: yeah. Yeah. I you know, you know in general like um you know, like y- you might be catty in certain ways in private conversations that you feel kind of embarrassed about but you 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 you're a bit catty um and and you don't you when it's the public you don't want to do that. Um it's also the case that there are certain f- there's certain disagreements that I would get into in person, if I was with somebody but that is not appropriate to do in, in in a public forum, but you're right. I mean I think that these things are just basically continuous with our normal persona i I don't also pretend to be a subject matter expert really on anything <laughs> in, uh, <laughs> I, 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 on twitter right, so right. i don't um, <laughs> maybe because i'm not um, the only thing actually I do. I do take serious I mean, th- th- certain things that I do know about, especially around the laws of war and about international law and stuff like that. i I um, I do opine about uh, jurisprudence almost never comes up on Twitter. Um, <laughs> and so there's no there's no uh, there's no uh, reason to be serious about that. Well, we can get into it because we're going to talk about
0: uh, I- its role in thinking about legal talk and thought. I mean, In in a way, like, you know, when I teach legal theory, it's like part of the argument to the students is why this stuff matters. And, and, and the argument is like, it's a lengthy argument in a way to, to suggest like why these disputes that you're having about whether it's about the legality of abortion or guns or, or the ability of the Senate to refuse to consider one of the, one of the president's uh, Supreme Court nominees. And like, why do these like disputed legal questions, how do they ultimately touch the what is law question or what are we doing here question? And, but that's a, but you can't, like to do that on Twitter would be one of those very annoying forty-part threads.
2: <laughs> yeah, right. no, it, uh, you're right. Exactly that you it, it wouldn't work. Right, uh, and uh, that's one of the things I learned very early on in Twitter, which was that um, if you want to have a, a a nuanced debate, you know, go somewhere else. But, but on the other hand, I hate Facebook. Yeah, uh, be, yeah. uh, precisely because you can have a nuanced debate on facebook but then the degree of effort you have to put into to write a very precise post would oh, just write an article yeah I, it's it's uh, you know twitter's fun because it doesn't matter um when it starts to matter then you should kind of yeah. invest in uh in real scholarly output or or, or a blog post i mean i, I think or, that, right right you, yes. yeah, yeah. I mean, the yeah. key
0: the key is writing something that you like if you're going to write it Carefully, you might as well put it out there for people to see. And I, especially over the course of the election, because I felt very strongly about a certain kind of departure uh, that we've experienced in the last year, I have used my own Facebook to try to talk in 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 more general terms than partisan terms about the need for thinking about this election differently. And, I, and you know, I've been kind of depressed that, <laughs> with yeah. the with the way that it's worked out. Um, uh, and and, and I guess, too, in Facebook, it is just casual enough where it's where it kind of feels casual, especially in the comment threads, even if people are being careful. But it's still, like all electronic communications, like email, it lacks that kind of in-person social carrier wave for the information yeah. well, that's it, being exchanged. It,
1: it right? lacks it, but, but it doesn't lack it enough. Um, it, it, <laughs> it, it's, if Facebook really is in this uncanny valley between Twitter and, um, and, and a more considered either blog post or short article or something like that. Where yeah. it's, it's sort of, um, you know, if you want to do things uh, dialogically, not in person... You really need to stretch out the the um, the asynchrony. You need to like make there be big gaps of time between the entries because mm. if because that's what helps a lot of the BS kind of fall away right. is when there's a real gap of time. Then people tend to focus more on the what, what is really important. At mm-hmm. least that's how, sort of how I think about it. Right. Right. Um, and so yeah, Facebook when it's when you're trying to do something a little more serious, it's like not enough time is going to go by before a person feels the urge to sort of say a bunch of stuff. Um, right, so yeah, it's, it's that not urge. That. That, it's that urge I find so unpleasant. Right, it just you know, <laughs>
0: you know what? I mean, like, you feel like you want to respond to something, um, but you, ah, yeah. I and, yeah. and this is to set to one side the the total. You know the the, uh, the difficulties I have with their algorithm, the fact that we, we don't have a social network which just shows you, unless right, you right use right. TweetBot, right, you know, reverse chronological. I just want to hear everything my friends say in reverse chronological order
2: without, people, <laughs> you know. <laughs> I actually, I mean, this 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 really, I, I mean, I don't know where you want the direction to go to, but I, I actually, this idea of, um, I don't know if maybe this is just idiosyncratic to me, but I have found having published a scholarly book and published a, well, a a book that's more public-facing, I have found that the issues facing the author are very different. So when you publish something that's public-facing and then gets reviewed in general uh, um, venues that the general educated public reads, there is this desire... To respond to criticism, ah, uh, yeah, um, um, and and this goes to the dignified thing. So, are you are you talking about your book with Una Hathaway, the internationalists? Yes. Okay, yes. just want to get that on the record. Yeah. The idea of criticisms hanging out there in the public is, I find, very um, disconcerting, and in that sort of thing doesn't happen really in the scholarly realm because there are reputational costs to writing a shoddy review. And so it has its own self-enforcing mechanism. So if somebody writes a really nasty review, they often look as bad as the object of the review. And so you don't need to respond Whereas in the public sphere, you feel like you need to respond because other people may not realize that these are not um, appropriate criticisms. But then you look silly for responding to something in a music magazine.
0: It's interesting that you you talk about it from the perspective. Yeah. So I can tell you, I just finished the internationalists this week. Actually, I was listening on audiobook. I also read legality, but I would never have listened to legality. Mm. Right. And and, and it's not because I think um, the internationalist is less serious, but it is like, it's, it's pitched differently. And for me, it's like about like, you know, learning a bunch of interesting history and, and kind of feeling the, you know, that the theme is about like the power of ideas ultimately, I think. Right. And, and, and you can, you can feel that in a way that you can't really feel your way through legality, right? Legality is a series of arguments with some very illustrative examples. And, and so um, it, it's interesting because I've thought about, um, you know, if I ever did a review of legality, it would be a very, you know, it would, I would have, you know, copious notes and kind of thinking through and how that refracts against my own thinking. I've also thought about doing... You know, sometime this year, maybe um, like a like a legal jurisprudential review of David Foster Wallace's The Pale King. (laughs) So it's interesting. Right. Because that book is is experienced a little bit more like I experienced The Internationalist. Right. I just I actually listened to that one, too, and it kind of washed over me. But if I'm going to write the review, I'm going to go back and treat it more like I treated reading legality. You know what I mean? Right. And, yeah. and so, so there, there's, there's both well, the that's way the author— you, you
1: live in these norms. You live in these scholarly norms that when you—so when you approach a thing that you're—you you have some of that uh, just at, in your hip pocket and as well, a way to think and do things. Well, that
0: kind of relates back to the Twitter. Like, I, I don't know if it's because I'm immersed in the norm so much as, like, I, when I encounter something, I'm thinking, like, what do I want to do with this? Like, when I read legality, like, I want to understand my own thoughts about jurisprudence better. And reading legality will, yeah, and seeing someone else's mind wrestle with the same questions is going to help me to do that, right? Right. When I read The Internationalist, like I kind of wanted to do – it's like in between actually. I, I kind of wanted to do that as well but also I'm learning a completely new story and it's pitched as kind of a story of the – of, of this dramatic shift right and and you can experience that way and certainly the pale which case. is
1: a human drama as well as other things right i mean it's not just an analytical experience it's a human experience
0: right so so, right. so all i'm suggesting
1: yeah, you, is that it's not so much about immersion in
0: norms for me it's like what my purpose is in encountering it mm.
2: but, right and, and, and right and so so or, or like so part of the part of the aim of the internationalists is to entertain um whereas that was not <laughs> any aim of legality um the aim of there was like to try to be as painfully clear as i could whereas in the in the internationalist zone and i were trying to make people want to read it
0: yeah well you know i tell students who, who when they write papers that even in academic writing um and maybe especially in academic writing these days although maybe maybe books like legality are in a different class right because you, you know, there's a there's an interest people would have in understanding it because You've been working toward that for so long, but but with an ordinary, say, law review article, you know, one way of 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 encouraging students to to think deeply about how they write is like that each, maybe not each sentence, but each paragraph is an argument to read the next paragraph rather than to stop and watch TV, right? And, right, and, right, right. And, and so right. E- even there, like I think even in the presentation of pure ideas, where the purpose, where the person's purpose in reading is to, you know, somehow push out the boundaries of one's own knowledge in a very particular academic way. Like you still need to entertain. It's just maybe there's a different right. concept of entertainment yeah. that like sure, they're play sure. with
2: ideas. Yeah. I, I think that's exactly right. So this is the thing that, um, I have in, um, w- w- issues I have with the law review format, because I actually believe that you really want to still have, even with an academic article, you want there to be suspense, Right. Um, and and the, in the law review format, you're supposed to tell your argument up front. So there's no suspense anymore. And I really – I try not to do that. I try not to spell the whole thing out at the beginning precisely because, you, you as you said, you really want the uh, article to have a drive to it. So that you, you want them to read the next paragraph because – They want to know what the answer is and it has to unfold as opposed to, you know, here's the um, here's the entire argument in a nutshell and then i'm going to work it out step by step and that that's kind of boring
1: you know it's funny this is uh, reminds me of a difference uh, that christian and i have uh, that we've talked about a few different times which is that um i love spoilers and previews and like for me i enjoy a movie much more if i've read and a very extensive description of it before i go gross um uh, which
2: <laughs> I, I that that is um that is an well, let me just say an idiosyncratic. <laughs> Highly. Uh, <laughs> this is, here's the funny thing. It's Scott.
1: actually not. It's actually not. It, 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 there are many. There are. I, I, I won't <laughs> disagree that that there are lots and lots of people like the two of you in the world because I know oh there God. are. But there are also lots of people like me, there, it, it, which is why there's this industry of writing these summaries and writing because there are a lot of people who – love to do it. They love to experience it in multiple modalities, and doing one before the other is not as important as doing all of them, and it's fun. We, uh, so we, we are about to, I think, get into meta-inquiry in
0: a big way when we talk about this paper, <laughs> but I'll just say this. A, a, a way, Scott, of, under, of understanding our show and the, the 160 episodes that we've done is it seems like it's about talking about legal ideas, but really it's just an exploration. It's it's like bringing Joe finally to the, the realization that he is highly, highly idiosyncratic.
2: <laughs> it's, one, it's one extended
0: argument, and you've just placed your finger on it after only about twenty or thirty minutes.
2: Right. Um, so that, that's great. So this is this podcast is one extended intervention. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> right, exactly. It is that's very true. inefficient. I mean, we. Yeah, right, right, right. It's taking 160 guests yeah. and probably more to get to to to, to get uh, to the realization.
1: I guess so. People do not tune in next week. Um, because we mission accomplished, Christian. There's you, 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 <laughs> <laughs> you there's a, a connecting New
0: York aspect to this whole thing. Mm, I think. That's but. true.
1: So going back to the point about so so I mean I actually I actually like that part of uh, the law review article style. The fact that there's road mapping. I think there's too much of it in most pieces, but I think a good dose of it is is fine. Um, although I also see, you know, because e- because even the most analytically precise. A uh, composition is uh, written for and will be consumed by other, you know, apes, meaning us, right? Um, the, and so and we like stories. Stories is kind of how we do stuff. Right. So even for of something analytical, there needs to be that story. You know, we had an extended discussion with Simon Stern about this in a show. Uh, I forget the
0: episode number. I'll link it up about. About legal writing as narrative, mm-hmm. right? And we ma- making some of the same points about suspense. I think in that yeah. show, do you remember and
1: that? It, I, I vaguely, and it's it just. And this is just something I, I think more. I think more now than I used to that it's sort of stories all the way down. I didn't used to believe that, but I sort of do now.
2: Yeah. So okay, actually, this is something I, I don't know the direction you want this conversation to go in, but it's going to go wherever wherever it goes, okay, okay, Scott. That's okay. cool. So, I, I, so this is something I have thought so much about, and so the writing style in The Internationalist is so different than the writing style in Legality. Um, And um, I think it took Ona and I such a long time to figure out, obviously we didn't master it, but we kind of got into the way in which more public-facing books are written. And it seems to boil down to one basic distinction, which is that the, you know, so there's always the showing versus telling. People tell you show versus tell, but that's <laughs> um, uh, that, that's really hard to understand, like what does it mean to show as opposed to tell? So it seems to me the big difference is that in academic writing, one leads with the thesis and uses the story as an application of the thesis. Whereas in public facing writing, one begins with the story and uses the story as a way of drawing out the thesis. Um, and I found it, um, really, really difficult to switch. Mm-hmm. That is how to start with the story and then draw out the ideas from it. But having done it, it's almost, it's really difficult kind of difficult to go back <laughs> uh, it really is um and i find that um now when i write academic articles there's a kind of stiffness to it and a lack of um <laughs> for lack of a better word narrative interest um and uh that's uh that's something I I'm I, I, I really wrestle with because you can't just write academic articles the way you write public-facing pieces. They have to be done differently, and yet they don't feel as interesting. It's the have-to that I'm curious about. I, you
0: know, I, I forget if we talked about it on the last – on that – show with Simon, but, um, but I'll just repeat it anyway. Like some of my favorite storytelling writing starts like super small and the world gradually expands. And I, I think the function of that, like, you know, there's the, uh, um, listening with my kids, I remember hearing, you know, the golden compass for the first time, right. I think it starts in a wardrobe or something like it starts in a very small place and you gradually learn all these interesting things about the world as it expands. And those some of my favorite films and, and books kind of work that way. Um, and I think one of the reasons is that that you build empathy for a character and his or her thoughts in a small way first, and then you kind of grow to appreciate the world through their eyes rather than just being thrown into something from the beginning. And so, right. Like, but it also builds in the suspense element, like, you know, uh, I know so very little about this, anything could happen next. There's this idea. And and I actually do think that academic ideas, like one of the jobs um, you know, and I was in math before, and this is not true of math, but I think it is very true of law, right? That, that to understand someone's point about how we should live together, it's, a lot of that is about understanding their mind, understanding how they're perceiving the problem, right? And, and so there is, I think, a place in, in law for kind of starting small, starting within someone's skull. And you could even argue that Hart's concept of law kind of—there's there's an element to kind of getting to know Hart in that book that helps you to appreciate it better, you know, over the, over the length of it. And I think you do the same thing in legality, you know, the storytelling you do of the, of the, uh, of the dinner club in legality, right. right I mean, it right. comes in the middle, but it's a story, right. And it helps that it starts simple and becomes more complex. And suddenly, you know, you get a sense of what sometimes I tell my students, right. in um, when we're reading like Supreme court opinions in this Supreme court group, right. But, that one of the things that the justices are doing, either when they're writing or even in oral argument, is is they're trying to create a narrative. Like, what is the story the law is really trying to tell here? Now, that may sound too like you know Dworkin like, but there's I think
1: there's a, there's some element of truth to it. And there's a difference between Aesop. There's sort of like a there's like an Aesop type and a and a Euclid type uh, that you could sort of oversimplify and try to categorize things in in those two ways as experienced. But hmm. but the You know, one thing that the author knows that no one else knows is that is what it's like to be not only the person who reads it, but the person who wrote it. And you don't have to write it in the way that people experience it. You can write the parts in different orders. You can, you -hmm. know, have a set of different insights that you that kind of create a frame and that when you finally have the piece done, they're actually in a very different order and they relate to each other in different ways. It's kind of how so, people do briefs too, right? I mean... Right. I mean, the author, yeah. but the author's experience of having built a thing, and I think this must be true of judicial opinions as well, right? Yeah. I mean, we're, we're consuming them as people who just don't know what it was like to have been the author, to, to have come to a certain. Point of view, and then figured out how to explain that point of view, and then go through the process of actually explaining it, which can be very, you know, can be quick and painless, or super uh, long and painful, and anywhere in between. Um, but that person knows that in a way that the other folks who are just readers of it don't know.
2: Right. So I think the I I think that's exactly right. So one of the, it's true for me, and invariably it's true for people who write dissertations. Um, which is is that you end up writing the intro last. Um, And so obviously, first, when you're the reader, which is, like, it sounds like that's the order of discovery. Right. But it's rather, um, really, the intros, it it follows uh, the the order of justification rather than the order of discovery. Um, And so you only know when you finish the book really what it's about. And then that's why lots of people tend to write the introduction last. That's certainly true for me.
1: Well, you, you write it last inevitably because even if you wrote one earlier, you're going to have to rewrite it. So right. it, it just necessarily is like it's in the much in the way that you always find a thing in the last place you look. It's because that's the place you found it. I mean, <laughs> right. so your, yeah, <laughs> your introduction exactly, is just going right. to have to do it at the end because until the end, you won't know what you really need to say in the introduction.
2: Great. Right, exa- exa- exactly. Right.
1: So speaking of
0: writing styles, so this, this piece that we're going to talk about, mm. about you know, meta-legal inquiry and, and what, what, this, what the project of jurisprudence is really all about, is, is different yet, right, than—and and Joe and I were talking about this before we got, before we got on, because this, this piece is written in a, in a totally philosophical style, right, which is not right. at all how you would write it for, the, for a general jurisprudence audience among law professors, and couldn't be further away from the style of, of the internationalists, much less like popular literature— Uh, was that the same kind of challenge or you have a philosophical background so maybe this felt like a return to uh, a return to a certain kind of writing that you haven't, you know, that that is is different than what you've been doing as a legal academic, I don't know.
2: Yeah, yeah, so that's, so first of all, let me just say in general, I love co-authoring, I love it Um, I really enjoy it I I find that my own limitations are completed by my partner um, and so I love doing it. And the, it turns out that the person who I've been writing most with for the last seven years has been Ona Hathaway, my colleague here. And she and I, we are intellectually couldn't be more different, um, at, in terms of what our backgrounds are and ha- our, our, our skill sets, you know, together, my joke is together, we actually make a scholar, <laughs> but, 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 uh, but, um, But the the thing is, she and I have the same kind of writing style and our editor uh, for the internationalist could never tell which of who wrote what part. Now, when I wrote this article with David Plunkett, um, we have very different writing styles. Mm -hmm. Um, And um, but I, I did a philosophy PhD and and David's in the philosophy PhD. In fact, David was my student when he did. His philosophy PhD. We started this paper if, when he was a first-year graduate student um, at Michigan, and we it took us I'm uh, eight years to write. We <laughs> wrote it over the, of eight years. Wow! Just because each it just wasn't it. Did, each iteration wasn't right. It just didn't feel right. And he and I had different tics.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: He felt like everything had to be qualified and i was of the opinion that like you can qualify something to death and i also th- thought that the the mistake lots of philosophers make is they think that you can you can fashion an argument that will really respond to every single objection out there and that makes the writing impossible to read and a real a real chore to read and that it's better to leave certain things certain objections unanswered so that the pa- so that the paper is readable what's really interesting is the fact that we started the paper david and i started the paper when we, he was a first year graduate student and we finished it right when he got tenure from dartmouth <laughs> so this was like the full life cycle wow um, and, and it yeah it went through so many iterations and what people what, what i think that people don't realize I I really it 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 pains me when I when I see it that people don't realize how long papers gestate or should gestate. Josh Nob and I are finishing a paper on proximal causation that's we've been writing for seven years, and that that and, and uh, the legality took me ten years. The internationalist took me six years. There's a way in which things should gestate and don't send it out until you feel like it's
0: uh, the paper you want it to be. Co-authoring helps with that, right, Scott? I mean, co-authoring really really helps with that because you can have so many different, like you can have almost like a person attached to each project. You can have seven projects going on at once. Yes. And right. And whereas all the incentives in the legal academy point away from what you're saying, right. The incentives in the legal academy, you know, at least outside Yale uh, is like, you know, get your summer writing project ready to go so that you'll at least have a draft in August and be ready to send it out in February. And uh, it's almost like, you know, book report, book report, book report, kind of thing.
2: Yes, but the thing is uh, so I I think that's exactly right and it's it's when I I got tenure at Cardozo and then and I got it at 2000 and after that I barely wrote I barely published a word. The only thing I published was this hard orkin debate piece which I was obligated to do because I had promised it <laughs> before I got tenure. Um, and that's a good way of getting something out by the way. Right, right, right. Yeah. So, <laughs> but, but, but aside from that, I didn't publish, I, I I barely published a word for 10 years Yeah. and I don't understand, I don't understand why people feel once they get tenure, why they feel the need to do that. They need to churn something out regularly when they, when they can sit on it and then publish it when they are, when they feel good about it. And as you said, you can do that, you can do that in stages. Mm -hmm. And I don't, I've always wanted to be the kind of scholar who people felt like if he published it, at least he thought it was important. Whereas you get some, and obviously I haven't satisfied that, but that was always the ambition Whereas for so many other people they think they need to constantly have their name in print. And I don't I, I, I find I find that that attitude somewhat mystifying.
0: I mean there is a diverse I mean there is value in kind of a diversity of attitudes in the Academy about like what to say and when to say it. I mean I think at least in the legal academy, there's there's some value in it. I I'm much closer to your view. In fact, I think it would be hilarious if someone wrote a, a satire of like a, a post tenure review of HLA Hart you
2: know <laughs> where right where it's like it would well, be short it would,
0: like not produ- you know uh it could be much more productive you know great book but you right. know what,
2: <laughs> well, well, right, right, right 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 but what's the ne- what's the next project what's the next and, project uh, yeah yeah they were worried about the trajectory <laughs> right.
1: the and it's a mix of internal i mean each person is a, is sort of a mix of their internal assessments and their internal desires and then the incentive structures that they're experiencing in whatever particular institutional environment they find themselves and different institutions make different choices about that. Um, and, and some, and, uh, you know, I think private institutions and public institutions face different constraints and, and have to satisfy different expectations. And, um, so there's, you know, it, it, there's a, there's a mix on all these dimensions of, of people making slightly different choices. So you have, a, there's sort of a mixed, uh, a mixed bag of of different ways to go. I,
2: I there's I, I should I should um, correct what I said. I you, what you're saying is undoubtedly correct. Um, of course, there's a diversity, and of course, um, people have different styles, and that's all a good thing. I shouldn't have said that. I, what I meant to say is I don't understand it. Is like I don't understand it, but I recognize that that is in fact the case. Right, um, and that it's that it's uh valid and legitimate it's just that's not the that's not how I feel about my work I mean the way I, we've said it before on the show like the, like I find it
0: frustrating uh anytime like anytime you know I, I'm a big believer in in the motivation for a work being being intimately and inextricably tied to the value of the work right and and uh, and, and so it's it's frustratingly both inefficient and and I think Socially wasteful when people produce something for no other reason than that there's an expectation of production. Yeah, like there there needs to be some other reason, and the fact that there are these incentives that explain why people do this and sometimes have to do it and it, 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 it's totally explicable. It doesn't make it any less frustrating, though.
2: Yeah, I, I think I think I think that's exactly right, and I've um, I've been really fortunate to be at institutions where. They trusted the faculty to n- not to have to constantly have something in print in order to in order f- in order to feel valued in the in the in the school and in the community. So I, I think, and that that there is something de- depressing. Where you produce something that you you didn't want to have to do, but you you did it for professional reasons.
0: Yeah. Well, l- let me let me ask you about the piece. So, I mean, the other thing I was going to say about the style, right, is that it has almost this like hyper clean, n- nearly antiseptic kind of like yeah. presentation. Like it's uh, unadorned with a whole bunch of examples and the kinds of things you would see in in in, in, a, in a legal article. And and in that sense, can either be like a breath of fresh air or a or, or a real mountain to climb, depending on your background in terms of of reading it. But what I substantively. When I read it, it, it like answered some questions that I that I that I actually had, but I didn't know that I had uh, um, uh, because, uh, you know, if you teach this stuff or, you know, or you write in it, you realize, like, it seems like everybody who every legal scholar who wants to have a theory of law and come out with their big theory of law. There's like a rhythm to the way that they write that book or they write that article. Right. There's. There's some struggling like with, like, why do we ask this question, what is law? Right. Uh, and right. then there's a part which tries to get straight about, like, what kind of thing law is. And then there's kind of the building theory part, which describes kind of the activity and more uh, uh, kind of, like, behavioral or rule—through a behavioral rule-like lens. There's some kind of working out of a model. And then there's a section usually on interpretation. There's a section on connection with morality. And then there's yeah. a section on international law. Uh, and and what, what I find amazing is that your section on international law was not, you know, it, it, not so much in legality as in the internationalists. But I'll I'll leave that to one side. Right. Um. But but like so so then the natural kind of meta question is like why why these things? Now I think I had an idea about why those things and how they fit together. Um. But this paper really goes into like questioning like when we ask ourselves what kind of what kind of what what is law talk and law thought? Like what what are we doing when we do those things? And that's You know, I talk about theory with my students, it's always like theory is another name for like having reasons. Like, and the question here is not so much what is law, but like, what are we doing when we do law? Like, what kind of thing are we doing? And this is like, you're saying, well, that is the ultimate question, right? Like what, how, how does law talk and law thought, how does that fit into whatever reality is? How does it fit into that? And then by looking at that question, like I said, maybe somewhat antiseptically, um, the the ultimate conclusion is we can broaden the the suite of philosophical tools and the kinds of thinking we could bring to bear on that question. But that was just my impression of,
2: you know, that's a a really helpful way of uh, giving uh, content to the very abstract presentation that we give in the paper. So several things to note. The, The most important thing is the word limit, Uh, there is uh, like, it's ethics. It's like got a 12th, you know, it's a, it's a standard philosophy journal and it's supposed to be 12,000 words. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, um, (laughs) so there, you've got a lot of big
0: ideas in here to fit into 12,000 words.
2: It took, it took eight years. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it didn't take eight years for nothing. Right. Um, so, so the first thing is that it, um, highly constrained and, you know, um, even though ethics sometimes allows slightly longer, the standard philosophy article is 23 pages. And it's just really difficult to do that. And so, especially if you want to say, what is general jurisprudence about? (laughs) Um, How's all this stuff connected? And what you have to do is not at all, you have to lay out the view, how it's all connected, how it's connected to meta-ethics, how it's connected to meta-normative theory, what do you mean by normativity, and then you have to say how this is different than what other people are doing and how does it, has it cash out? There's almost no, there's no, it has to be extremely lean. That is, there's no fat that's, that, that's, you're, you're going to be able to put uh, in, in such a paper, which makes responding to referee comments all the more difficult because, mm. You know, you can't you can't really expand the paper um, that much, and you also don't want to qualify things too much because then you can't. You also that just takes up space. So I'm constantly thinking about what sentences to get rid of, um, and how to how to make the presentation really lean. The I, I, let me say another thing about about writing and especially about philosophy writing, and this is a lesson that. Um, I learned from my wife, who's an editor, um, and she taught me the, uh, the most important lesson I think there is in, certainly in academic writing, but probably in all writing in general, which is never have the reader do any work. Always spell it out. Hmm. So if, they, if the reader has to pause to try to figure out exactly a, either what you meant or how what you said in one sentence leads to the next, if there's any cognition going on, uh, then you're, you're in trouble. So everything should be spelled out so that the whole thing flows and so that the reader is not left wondering how exactly. Okay, I, I guess I see how this is related to that but how exactly is it?
0: It's a little bit like being thrown into the trunk of a car, getting out at the destination, and saying, "I know that we got from A to B, but like, I'll be damned if I know how we got there."
2: Right. I know. I know. I could probably figure it out, um, uh, but nothing should be left as an exercise for the reader, even if even if all it would take the reader is three seconds to figure it out. Those three seconds ruins the reading experience, and it, and it makes things unclear. And so even if you want to have something super lean, you also want it to be spelled out so much that the reader can read it through, read through, it's much harder to do it on in a philosophy article that's very abstract, but that's, that is, I, that's always been my goal.
0: Well, it it certainly presumes a background, right? I mean, I, I, like someone who is uh, only familiar with the legal literature who reads this piece is going to, I have to say, going to be engaging in a lot of cognition. Right, they're going to because <laughs> go, there are a lot of terms that they don't know, and the, right. so and why you would follow one argument with another, like I think that's totally like, um, uh, uh like it's, if you're a philosopher, it makes complete sense why you would do it this way, but if you're not, it, it doesn't. And, and given that I write in an area that kind of straddles both, but I'm not a trained philosopher, it's like, like I could kind of see both sides of it.
2: Right. Yeah. So 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 that's right. So the the key thing is your reader. That is like who's re- who's reading ethics right so the, so it was very much we wanted to publish it in a in a straight philosophy journal. people who are interested in meta ethics and might become interested in jurisprudence if only they saw the connection mm. so you know so that was that was the the idea was not to talk to the legal philosophers but really to talk to the moral philosophers and the the people who work on metaethics and try to say see we're working on much of the same problems you're working on and that was the that that was the aim but
0: you could write it you could write an equivalent paper that had the same arguments but written in a different register that that had where the conclusion you know of the same arguments is hey legal you know legal philosophers you should uh, consider philosophy of mind and these other areas rather than just metaphysics, right? I mean, there, there's more to it, and here's here's kind of philosophical license to look more broadly when you want to talk about law at the meta level.
2: No, that's that's exactly right, but it would never get published in the law. <laughs> it, it just wouldn't. Yeah. I mean, you know, it just wouldn't get published in... Um, in a law review. Well, see, Scott. Now you're learning why I am not so
0: savvy about like uh, my choice of writing topics. Because <laughs> it sounds it sounds great to me.
2: I would write that article and it'd be like, "Ah, oh, no one's published it." Oh well. I, uh, my, my 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 entire career has been like trying to figure out who's interested in what, mm. um, and I have spent I, I, I have spent an enormous amount of time trying to figure that out uh, for different for different audiences. When I was um, going on the market uh, when I was a wee lad, um, I remember Jules Coleman saying to me, nobody has ever gotten a job doing jurisprudence. (laughs) And um, and so he was like, you should do something in family law. You should do something in criminal law, substantive uh, areas that I taught in. And frankly, I just wasn't interested in writing in those topics, though I found them interesting. I I didn't find them gripping in the way that I found jurisprudence. And so I I just wrote in jurisprudence. But having done that, I had to be kind of savvy or try to be savvy in terms of picking my topics that would be interesting enough to law professors that they would give me a job. But it inevitably means that, the, you know, that's
0: maybe why the book and other things like you, so much of the general jurisprudence article, I don't say so much, but, but there at least is a chunk of it, which has to justify itself in a way that like, if you wrote a con law article, um, not to disparage con law articles, that can be great and, and not so great con law articles, but you could, you could certainly publish one that simply took a position on same sex marriage using kind of a, a different kind of rhetorical, argumentative structure right and you wouldn't have to sit there and justify like why this why this is a contribution I mean it inevitably is in the contrib- in the in the introduction you know this is a new way of doing blah 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 but it seems to me jurisprudence have a have a have a tougher road to hoe in terms of justification oh, yeah
2: oh absolutely I mean it is it is really it, it's tough but I mean we have the same thing about international law in the internationalists own and I It took us forever to try to figure out how to make international law interesting to the general public. So there's a way in which what distinguishes a discipline is that certain questions are understood to be of interest and that don't need to be justified. They can be presupposed. But when you are writing outside the discipline or the subfield, you have this huge burden to justify what you're doing. And so jurisprudence, when you're writing to legal to uh, to l- legal academics, you have to justify why that's interesting. If you're writing about jur- uh, jurisprudence to meta-ethicists, you have to explain why that's interesting. If you're writing about international law to non-lawyers, you have to justify why that's interesting. The easiest thing to do, and it's funny because for some reason I don't, do that. Um, I, I, now that I'm talking about it, I I'm like in this constant uh, desperate attempt to try to convince people that certain things are interesting, um, rather than just helping myself to the fact that my audience finds it interesting.
1: So, so let me let me um, shift uh, the direction a little bit in terms of the the paper and what it accomplishes. Since are you going to talk about the paper now?
2: I, I might.
0: Um, well, I just want to let Scott know that normally. Normally, our conversation is pretty much all about the paper, Uh, (laughs) (laughs) although there's a lot of nonsense on our shows ordinarily. And this has been like, you know, it's gone wherever it's gone. I think that's great. Yeah, absolutely.
1: So um, if I think about if someone asked me, you know, what is general jurisprudence um, and I hadn't yet read this paper, I think I would give an answer. It wouldn't be quite as sharp as you guys put it in the very last paragraph, but it might resemble it a little bit, right? I might say, well, you know, general jurisprudence is grappling with the question, you know, what is law or what's the nature of law. Uh, so I would fall into the trap of being of thinking it's mostly about metaphysics, um, and I would say, and and the way it's played out is at least in the twentieth century, it's a series of pointed debates. So if what if you read. Um, in sort of a, a serial dialogue form, if you sort of, you know, there'll be this thing called the Hart-Fuller debate, and there'll be this thing called the Hart-Dworkin debate, and there'll be this thing called the XY debate, and, you know, Raz will be in there, and you'll come up with a, one or two other names, right? And you'll, and you'll feel like you basically, you know, it's not the whole field, but it's a lot of the field, and it would certainly teach you the moves that are being made and the the basic contours of the conversations that are being had. And so back to Christian's point about if you're going to write your theory of law, it would have those chapters about these various things, right, interpretation, mm-hmm. da, 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 da. And, and in that context, you could sort of map the the debates and the portions of the debates that kind of fed into that. So that would be one way to talk about. And it would be based in the way general jurisprudence, at least in my perception, as someone who does not but uh, not only not write in the field, but I don't teach in the field. Um, that's sort of my sense of it, right? So I don't know that that's a great answer, but it's the answer I'd give. But now that I've read your paper, I sort of think, well, there's this whole other way that you can talk about uh, th- the answer to that question, and and it's uh, it, let me try it on for size, so sort to of see if I learned anything from reading this paper. So so there's a basic move. Um, uh, if you want to, if you want to something, uh, so there's the activity itself, and then there's trying to figure out how thought and talk about that activity fit in with the rest of reality. That's the metification move. Um, right. And so, w- w- general jurisprudence. So you could have meta ba- you could have ballet and meta ballet. Right. A- absolutely. <laughs> right. And, and right. I'm sure there is. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I'm of sure, course th- there is. I'm okay. sure there's great thinking and writing um, about meta ballet. uh, Because ballet is an amazingly um, uh, challenging and inspiring activity where the level of human accomplishment in ballet is just staggering. There could be a podcast
0: Um, about our show where people just talk about what we did on our show and how we do our show. That would be meta oral argument. Correct. That's why
1: (laughs) I I think this move is actually a brilliantly concise (laughs) and and important insight about people, right? Which is we can do this thing. We Mm -hmm. can take. and, And of course, that means there's also meta metification, right? You could have a conversation about. How the activity of thinking about thought and and a talk about something fits in with the rest of reality fits in with the rest of reality. I, right? think, you can I keep think we doing should it. call that megaphication. <laughs> <laughs> so so right. if so, general jurisprudence is the kind of meta law that focuses on the universals in meta law. So it, it it's it's not just meta law; it's a species of meta law, namely the stuff that, it, that that are the universally found aspects of that stuff. So it's, right?
0: not, it's not questions like how does the United States Senate tend to treat appointments and why do
1: they do that? And talking about their incentives, it right. talks about... Say, it's also not, it's also not um, yeah. uh, how does thought and talk about how the Senate typically deals with appointments fit in with the rest of reality, Right. which would be the meta version of that. It's neither of those things. But questions about why human
0: beings tend to have legislatures which do certain things is general jurisprudence.
2: Right, right. So, so one way of thinking of uh, w- one thing that I found very um, illuminating, and now I'm going to going to try to exactly reconstruct the saying. But uh, Wilfred Sellers once said that philosophy is how to describe, in the broadest possible sense, how everything hangs together in the broadest <laughs> possible sense, you know? Um, and so there's a way in which, right, jurisprudence as a part of philosophy is seeing how those uh, certain things hang together, but that's really part of the meta-normative project which is how all the normative stuff hangs together, right. which is really part of the explanatory project of philosophy, which is how everything hangs together. Um, and so when you when you do that, you start seeing all the degrees of freedom
1: you have. Yeah. And this gets to the contrast that I would draw between those two answers that I might give, one before I read your paper and one after, which is that the first answer could sound pretty stale uh or and pretty not generative, right? It's like, oh, it's a series of debates. It sounds like it's finished. And it sounds like it's not particularly interesting. I might want to learn about it because, you know, I've got a yen for history and for, you know, fussy debates between, you know, people who are either English or Anglophilic. So I think I'll go, (laughs) you know, I think I'll go obsess on that for a while. That'll feel good. Right. That would be the, the first. But the second answer just sounds like there's a lot to do. There's a lot yeah. left to think about and talk about. It sounds very generative and it sounds like it could involve a lot well, of different things. Because once you're yeah. trying to figure out how thought and talk about a topic fits in with the rest of reality, you're like, oh, my God, that's a huge list of <laughs> well, stuff. But, but right? I'm re-
0: I'm reading that and thinking like this is also an explanation for why some of us who do write – like why some of us can't help but write in this. Like why every okay. single legal dispute leads me – To that question, like, you know, I could spend time talking about why people's different theories about abortion prohibitions. Right. And and I think it's important. It's like critically important that we have those discussions. But like if I really think about like why, how people disagree, you know, the fora in which they disagree, what is the source of that? Like I'm inevitably pushed to these questions, to the question about like why do people talk about law and think about law in the ways
2: that they do? Yeah. So 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 um, let me. Let me um, just say, a I, I thought what you both said was I thought really hopeful, um, and um, I found really interesting this I, that I and I think it really captures something that I have felt about the practice of jurisprudence lately, but also um, what David Plunkett would say to me routinely because David's a meta ethicist. Um, moral philosopher who also is an excellent legal philosopher, but he comes from the meta ethics um, tradition. And what he said to me was that there's like a huge shame uh, that jurisprudence is always presented historically, you know, that there, and, and through these anglophilic uh, anglophone philosophers with the occasional Kelson um, thrown in that you know first it was Austin then there was Hart and then there was Dworkin and then there was Raz and then there was you know as if it's just a series of authors having the this very kind of limited debate rather than this big question about how all this stuff fits together and so I think that that's a extremely um, important but this gets Can I get it edgy? (laughs) Please do. Okay. 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 So there's a way in which I think jurisprudence much more in the UK, especially at Oxford and um, kind of more like Oxbridge as opposed to more of the London schools where jurisprudence has become a heritage industry. It has become something where we discuss the great men who have come before, and basically we're curating the debates to make sure people know what's really important to read and that they make sure that they don't make mistakes about what these great men have said. And there's really nothing... More that 's left to be done, i mean there's little things there's like applying it to e u law there's some mm-hmm. stuff di- going on you know the hard work in and raz didn't really say very much about tort law, so it's like we could talk about tort law, but when it comes to jurisprudence, they've said it all, and really, our job is to teach what the great men have said, what the great books um have um have set out and this is, this is jurisprudence as as Bentham in the glass case yeah exactly exactly i mean it's like it's a heritage uh activity and if you put it in terms of how legal thought talk and and, and reality whatever that's about fits in with the rest of reality well a that's not historically that's not historically framed. That's not saying what do we think about the hard to work in debate. That's the first thing. Number two, it's it's specified in a philosophical way, which can which is continuous the w- with the way that other philosophers think about their own subject. And so you see legal philosophy as being continuous with philosophy more generally, as opposed to the way it's done. In Ox, uh, kind of the Op- Oxford style, whereby legal philosophy is kind of its own thing, and the the David Plunkett really helped me appreciate the need to characterize the activity of journal jurisprudence in a much more open, less historical, and more philosophically friendly way.
0: It's interesting when I was writing the, you know my theory piece which lays out my theory uh I I tried to like consciously tried to get away from understanding jurisprudence as like a box of index, of index cards with names like you know you know jurisprudence just is Hart's theory Dworkin's theory Fuller's theory and everything else is about putting together those different pieces and and commenting on the boundaries between them like you know the the moves are not one person's name, another person's name and you know, either, uh, favoring one or reconciling them. Rather the, the whole thing is more open than that. It's, it's ultimately a study of the way that brains are interacting. And if you, it, once you get to that level, there's so much, you know, I felt that there was a kind of blue sky there.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that that's, I think that's exactly right. Um, that, that is really the way one should think about it. And, um, it's critical that if the field is to survive people continue to think about it because who wants to who wants to spend all their time writing exegetical pieces about you know what hart thought in essays on bentham or something like that is, or another piece on internal point of view or it's just boring i uh, i absolutely love how meta this conversation has been
0: about, <laughs> it, it's been it, it's been a meta conversation about this piece it's funny you're right it, it is if i could ask you though like wh- like uh because we're not going to be able to get to everything in the piece obviously in the time that we have and and um and it there's so much to unpack so this will just be part one of 10 episodes with scott <laughs> shakiro i think but, <laughs> Uh, uh, well, we can talk as long as you want, but um, but, but I want to make sure that we just, um, maybe the best thing to throw out, if we can only throw out a few things, is like to get your idea of what does it mean to say, uh, or what does it mean to you to say that we are trying to figure out how talk and thought about law fits into reality. That's a phrase that appears over and over again through the piece, not just about law, but also ethics and the other meta Inquiries, like a normative thing yeah what does it mean to, to for for thought and talk to fit into reality
2: yeah I mean so it, it, the you think well there are these things called legal facts and gosh how do they fit in with reality well legal facts don't seem to be metaphysically basic the world wasn't created with law in it um, uh, it seems it's created by some other types of activities and rests on other kinds of facts. Um, And what would those facts be? And so there's, you know, the positivist thinks that legal facts are ultimately grounded in social facts and the natural lawyer thinks that legal facts are ultimately grounded in moral facts as well. And so, okay, that's great. But wait a second. We talk about things like obligations and rights and authority. And those all seem to be, they seem to be moral concepts. And we think about the law as a normative social activity. They, we, we, we seem to See it as giving us reasons, not all the time, but reasons of certain sorts. But so now we have like we're using seeming moral language, rights, obligations, authority. We're thinking about the law as being reason giving. And yet, how do we square that with the fact, if you're a positivist, that you just said that legal facts? Were, were grounded in social facts because it doesn't seem like social facts could generate the kinds of things that we think the law does generate and that we describe the law as generating. So then the the trick is to then say, okay, well, what do we mean by obligation? What do we mean when we think of the law as reason giving, and then we have to think, well, okay, whatever we're going to say about that, it really should be able to connect with how we talk and think about morality, because we want to make sure that what we say about the law really jives with what we think about morality and other kinds of reasons, other kinds of normative thoughts. And we all got to do that with the idea that we're grounding legal facts in social facts. And so like it turns out to be like this enormously, when you start like working it out, it seems to be very, um, uh, this re, this multidimensional puzzle where we not just worry about the metaphysics, but we also worry about how we talk about things and how we think about things and how all those things are connected to how we think and talk and, and, and what we believe the world is like in Areas that are in the neighborhood of law. And that, that suddenly becomes like a really difficult thing to do on the one hand. It's very difficult. On the other hand, it gives us resources to figure out how we could do certain things. And so I think a lot of the kinds of objections people have towards positivism, that it seems arid, that it seems like it couldn't possibly account for the normativity of law, well, if you actually spend some time studying the semantics associated with the law and legal epistemology, you might be able to see that the legal semantics suggests a certain kind of normativity that is perfectly compatible with a descriptive Socially grounded metaphysics of law. So you start getting extra resources, extra degrees of freedom in coming up with new accounts of the law, simply by trying to see how all these different pieces fit together. I'm, I, I'm not. No, I'm yeah, not no, sure. no. I mean,
0: that's it, there, there's this. Um, it's an interesting way of thinking about it, and and I uh, that. Um, and then, in some ways, it's it's kind of like the meta version of Dworkin. Like, there has to be like what you're trying to get straight is how these different things, which we think are true, like are independently grounded in reality. Like, we we know that legal facts are certain are certain thoughts about social relations of a certain kind. And, and, and social facts are, 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 are certain, are, you know, another way of talking about our thoughts about things which we think have happened in the world, right? And and we have to, like, align this with our sense of obligation. More Like, this is a, a menagerie that has to all kind of fit together to, to, to form a theory, um, which is a different... Like, that's that kind of internal cohesion criterion is a little bit different than... Then maybe what I thought you were gonna where where you were gonna go, which is about like you know directly grounding um, uh, the practice of of thinking and talking about law into some like into some theoretical picture of what reality is all about. Do you, I, I don't know if that makes any sense, but like the, it seems to me like one project is getting an internally coherent model of how these different things fit together, and another is just grounding in like you have a theory of reality, you have a theory of what's actually happening and law is a, is a branch of that theory.
2: Um, I think we're saying the same thing. Um, and I think that what you're, what you're pointing to is that the, this, this idea of coherence That is, things need to fit together. And the goal of the legal theorist is to show how everything fits together. And that is, on the one hand, enormously difficult, but on the other hand, it's enormously freeing because a there's lots of things there're lots of resources but also there're lots of puzzle there're lots of different puzzles that people will have about how things fit together and so there's no there's no end to jurisprudence there's no end to to saying how all these things fit together because we're all going to be at different times at different stages with different interests puzzled about different parts
1: Mm-hmm. Now, another phrase that occurs throughout the paper repeatedly and, and makes me wonder if I really understand it um, is the phrase explanatory project as right. opposed to some other kind of project. So when when you – is there something you could do to help me understand, make sure I'm understanding the scope of that word or the choice of that word? Uh, explanatory as opposed to what?
2: Yeah, as opposed to like causal So I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to explain how legal systems, um, why certain laws are made and why judges decide the way that they do. I wanna give an explanatory account in the kind of constitutive, in the sense of a constitutive explanation, meaning what would it mean to say that the judge was deciding the case? What would it mean to say that legal facts are non-ultimate and that they're grounded in other facts? What would it mean to say that these rules impose legal obligations? And how does that fit with the idea that sometimes the law can be unjust? So it's a, it's an attempt to give what they call constitutive explanations as opposed to causal explanations.
1: So there is sort of a coherentism that's implied in that,
2: right? Yes, yes, absolutely. Though the coherentism isn't one which—so um, the, the, sometimes people mean by coherentism that— your theory is correct if it coheres. Yeah, and I wasn't—I impl- I yeah, didn't yeah, mean right, to suggest right.
1: that. Nor did I mean to suggest that this is sort of a, you know, the bed of procrustes where you guys are chopping <laughs> people's feet off or something like right. that in, 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 the, in the vain hope of reaching something not otherwise reachable. But simply that, um, you know, it, in, uh, I, I, that, was, that was really helpful, that it's not causal, um, right. which it's not, it's in, not a, in a way could be more kind of um, more fundamentally psychological,
2: uh, what you mean causal? The causal thing? Yeah, the ca- situ- causal ones.
1: Yeah, the causal ones might tend to lead you in directions that have more to do with um, biology and psychology. Right.
2: Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's the, they, the the sociologists, the psychologists, the biologists. They're the ones who should be uh, anthropologists, um, maybe economists. Um, they they're the ones who are supposed to give you a causal theory of the law. So um, the difference is
0: like why do judges disagree versus what's happening when judges disagree. Right, exactly. Exa- right,
2: or, yeah. or like how is it even possible that they can disagree? Right, yeah. Um, you know, a Ala la Dworkin, if the law is convergent social practice, then how can they possibly disagree? Because disagreement shows that there isn't convergence. And um, so that seems to be like a constitutive, uh, the constitutive problem, right, as opposed to a causal problem.
0: And are you completely sold that you can do one without the other? Like, is it possible mm-hmm. to give an explanation for what's happening when judges disagree without having a um, without having a theory of why they disagree?
2: Um, so that's such a hard question because, in some sense. You, you, you can't do jurisprudence unless you really know how legal theory works. I mean, I'm sorry, how legal practice yeah, works. Yeah, right, right. Right. Um, but that's at the level of like, – um, to underst- it, that's like to understand the practice, the thing you're explaining – so you have to know the explanandum before you can give the explanans. You have to know the phenomenon you're trying to explain before you can explain it. But the the you don't really have to know the things that anybody who uh, anything more than anybody who was a normal participant in the practice would know. That is you don't have to you don't have to have access to elaborate data sets and, and the results of regressions and the like in order to do it. But like, it's, 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 uh, probably impossible to do it unless you know what it is that you're theorizing. And I do think that being a lawyer and being in a law school helps a great deal in the attempt to engage in theory, so I think that so many of the great legal theorists uh, past century and a half you know have been lawyers and have uh, at least some legal training.
0: It's a little bit like you know if you were interested in meta aesthetics, it would probably would help to surround yourself with architects and artists and and um, and people who you know work in, oh, right. work in producing beauty,
2: right? Or, I mean, or maybe even
1: be such a person.
2: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Right. Or philosophy of physics is a, for a perfect example. Yeah, I mean, yeah. It's like I, I don't know how you do philosophy of physics if you don't know physics. <laughs> um, well, you know, but the,
0: the distinction I had in my mind was not like like I can totally get that you could have an account of the way that legal uh, of of what is happening when lis- when legal disagreement occurs. Without having a knowledge of, say, the um, um, the the precedent, the particular precedent in a particular disagreement, like you don't need that kind of ground level data. But it seemed to me that you did need an account of what is what it is that is causing one person to announce words and for those words to be perceived as contradictory to the, to the thoughts and words of another, right? Like that, that, and whether you think of that as psychological or you have some other theory for that, it seems to me that, that those are the things that are intimately connected rather than, yeah. like you said, like any particular data set of, of the substance of a particular agreement.
2: No, absolutely. Cause, because the, what you just described are the facts that go into a constitutive explanation. You know about like what you know the what does it mean for them to be disagreeing? What are they disagreeing about? Um, The only way you're going to know that is if you're going to know the shape of those kinds of disagreements and the kinds of resources not only that they make reference to, but the if you will the internal point of view. What is it that other participants think uh, think is an admissible? Uh, way of expressing the debate. So, for example, if you were, if if the originalist says, "I think that the Constitution ought to be interpreted according to the original understanding because the Bible says so," you know that that's just not going to count as a reason because it doesn't connect in the right way with legal practice, and that is something that you kind of need to know about the practice in order to know that that's unacceptable because the fact that the bible said that is a is an acceptable response in other types of systems
0: yeah it, it's not it's not a
1: justification within the relevant community and you yes. can do and you can have all of that conversation without having a causal account of, yes. of of those, of those activities. Um, Absolutely. Either past or, or present activities. Um Absolutely. So, so one, I do want to do one thing, um, to, again, to like Christian, I want to make sure one, uh, something gets said <laughs> before <laughs> we, before we run out of time, whenever that occurs. Um, and that is, um, uh, you know, uh, I, I want to stick up a little bit for the, for a, a project of curation or heritage, um, that, that, um, which, shocking which, Shocking! i'm which, totally shocked by this <laughs> which doesn't mean that which doesn't mean that everyone wants to do it uh, didn't, that, didn't i tell you the show was about met a meta show about joe yeah, yeah. Joe's <laughs> 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 it doesn't mean that everyone wants to do it it doesn't mean that everyone needs to do it um but i think it is a good that it is done um at least if it's done in a spirit of recognition that it it is it is surely not the most important thing happening right um Uh, but, but, um, you know, so, so if you approach the, the heritage or the curation project in the, in in sort of with the spirit that, you know, heritage is going to make the future possible in a way that's better than it would be without it. Um, I think that's, that's cool. Um, because, um, you know, what it means is simply that, um, conversations have been had, thoughts have been thought and, uh, if for no other reason than to avoid certain sorts of past mistakes or to get a little bit further ahead than you would otherwise be if you hadn't known that these things occurred already and that you can learn from them, uh, I think that's, you know, that's good, right? It's, it's like, you know, uh, curation can facilitate progress, um, it doesn't mean progress is impossible without uh, without curation, not at all. Uh, it doesn't mean progress is inevitable with curation. I don't mean not either, but simply that. Um, and and this uh, it, it is just part of my own personal experience. And 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 you actually use the phrase "great book" without meaning it in the mm. in the sort of air quotes "great book" sense. I was going to bring this up, right? But it connects to that. Yeah. Um, uh, that that it it can be. Um, it can be really helpful. It's also a siren song, though. Um, well, the, the
0: problem is not recognizing the difference in that project, right? I mean, right. Yeah. The, 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 Scott is saying the project is much broader. Yes, and and people are mistaking the curation project for the whole project. Yes, right? yeah,
2: that's yeah, that's exactly right. So if you're doing legal theory and you haven't he- read Hart, Dworkin, Raz, you know, blah blah blah, then you're a fool. Um, and so, uh, and I, you know, I just taught jurisprudence, um, this morning, um, and you know, what am I doing? I'm marching through Austin hard, right. you know, concept of the law. Of course I'm doing it that way. It's just, as you said, to think about it only as that is really limiting. Um, and it's really useful to teach things in the kind of march through the greats, uh, but. It would be a terribly. It would be a disservice to the inquiry, and just a like, uh, just a deadly, boring activity to describe to your to your students that this is all that you do.
1: Mm. Right, or to or to set it up as some sort of orthodoxy, where what's important is, can you parrot this without uh without straying from it.
2: Yeah, would, I, 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 and I. Would be terrible. I, 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 unfortunately, I think that's what it's become in 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 certain parts. Yeah, well, that, and that's bad. Yeah. <laughs> so you
1: yeah. know, all
0: right. I, 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 are we going to wind it up? Yeah. Are you, are you going to well, lay I, down I, with this? Well, I was just, you know, I, I I feel like. So I sometimes say on the show, Scott, that that we are America's faculty colloquium. and 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 america didn't know that it wanted or needed one but we're providing it anyway and then joe objects and i say because he thinks that i'm denigrating the show and he thinks we have a great show we do have a great show i agree but he, he thinks i'm unduly denigrating and then i say of course you're right i meant the international Faculty colloquium, and uh, uh, but but the point is that normally you know normally it is like we have the paper. It, it's like a, a re, you know I think a really good faculty colloquium because it's more conversational than, than people who have prepared their questions and all of this, right? So right. Uh, um, so the only thing that I feel bad about today is that we didn't give you the American faculty colloquium. Full experience because you know because we had so many things to talk about and you were such game for like let's just talk about what we're interested in which mm-hmm. is kind of what we do on the show anyway so I both thank you for that and apologize
2: to you for that uh, no 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 I mean uh, I have to say it's just so you know it's it's liberating um, to be able to just, <laughs> you know to, yeah. a, to you know have an interesting conversation um, and also I, I have to say I I was just thinking. You know, like these podcasts, um, you know, people listen to them for different things. And like when I was when I was young, I would have loved to hear like what, you know, kind of more senior people thought about writing and about what they do and stuff like that. So I was just kind of imagining like what I would have wanted to hear um when i was when i when i was much younger um and so that's that's that but anyway I, I i i get i get raked over the coals every second of the day so so um to for you to have spared me about 30 minutes of that um i i is is is, is appreciated but you know there, there there's another time you yeah. know if you ever if you ever want me back on the show okay I'd so l- uh, next week uh, we'll have <laughs> you <know. laughs>
0: No, but, you know, I I, I can't let that go because I I, I so, you know, empathize with that, sympathize, I guess, with that comment because uh, I can't think of the number of occasions where as a graduate student and then as as a law student, you would read something by like an eminent scholar uh, and it would present one way in the book and then you would hear them talk about it and you're like, ah, now I get it. And it's not just that there would be different examples. There's something about like having people converse about a thing. Maybe this is the the you know this is accounts for some of the success of the platonic dialogue it's as unconversant as they sometimes are mm. right like the, 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 there's something about it that you just perceive it differently and right. uh, so i totally agree with that like you know hearing about someone's work hearing someone describe their work at a meta level <laughs> uh sometimes helps you to understand it more deeply.
1: And if David were here, we would have heard probably some some uh, different observations and different we'd have yet another understanding and then yeah. there'd also be not just David but there'd be David and Scott interacting and you could think of that as another entity actually. Um the thing that exists when only they are together talking. Um so yeah, we we you know, you get those levels that you can't that you can't get from the page. And before we right. let you go, I I can't,
0: you know. I, I feel like it would be, um, uh, it would, it wouldn't be proper for me to extract a commitment on uh, 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 from you on Ona's behalf to come in and talk about the internationalists with us. But at some future date, it would be great to talk about the internationalists.
2: You know, that 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 would be great. I'd love that. Yeah, I would love that.
0: I just have to read it first, which I haven't <laughs> yet. So, okay, it's amazing.
2: It's a quick read. Yeah, it's a it, it it was it was it was designed to be a quick read. Yeah, so it's not nearly as painful as legality. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks a bunch, Scott. This has been
0: really okay. really fun. Appreciate it.
2: Okay, okay. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed that.